Welcome and good evening. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. And where have I been on vacation at the Burning Man Festival? Where have you been, all right? Where have you been? So it's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening, the show where no one cares, not even me, the show where every episode's the last episode. Today I'm going to talk to you a bit about the Burning Man Festival, what happened if you haven't been following the news. It rained. It rained a lot. Some 70,000 people were stuck out there, unable to leave for two days. The media, of course, blew it way out of proportion, but we're going to dive in a little bit from my perspective, working at the radio station at that event, what happened. And who better to interview me about this than Dan Riskin, who's normally our science expert. He's an evolutionary biologist. Usually I have him on this show if you've been listening to talk science, but I often just try to derail him as much as possible. We joke around. But today he emailed me and he wanted to talk about the festival, so I thought I would do just that. I'm going to talk to you about how cool it was being part of the only media outlet at that festival and much, much more. What it's like to slop through the mud with a bunch of dirty hippies. So let's jump right in with my friend Dan Riskin. Hey, do you hear me? Yeah, I hear you great. We have lots to talk about. Dan, I can't think of anyone other than maybe four or five people I'd rather be here with than you after Burning Man. I have so many questions, and I know you're supposed to interview me, but tough patootie, because I have so many questions about what happened to you at Burning Man. Did you put plastic bags and socks on your feet? I did the plastic bag over socks with like a bungee ball thing, and I walked around like that. I had a campmate who did the plastic bag, the sock, the plastic bag, the shoe, the sock, the target bag, and he kept on talking about it on the radio, which we'll talk about the radio in a second. As a joke, he literally got messed up feet. I don't know, maybe there was mud in there, and he had to like leave because his feet got infected. He might have gotten trained. Trench foot, but I want trench to talk. Foot. Trench foot, but I want to talk to you wow. about something wild about trench foot before we. I, you know what? I want this episode to be as incoherent as possible because oh, so far it's going well. Okay, if you're listening, just so you know, Burning Man is a festival that David Cooper goes to, and he runs the radio station there during Burning Man. It's a big festival where it doesn't rain most of the time. It's in the desert. It's in a dried up lake bed with alkaline salt on the lake bed. It's a wild environment, and it never rains. Except when it rains, which it did this year, and climate change or not, whatever it is, it rained, and a whole bunch of people got stuck because that playa turns into mudda, and it turns into an especially sticky mud, I'm told, that like turns into a gl- like it sticks to you and gets big like cement would in a cartoon with Bugs Bunny as he tries to walk through cement. So um, David Cooper, I knew, was there. I was hearing reports. I was listening to other people talk about like, and people were like, you know, billionaires were stuck there. Chris Rock was stuck there for a while, like all these people. And I'm like, I don't care about any of them. I just want to know what David Cooper is doing. I want to know his experience. How's David Cooper doing? But you're back in New York. I made it. 
somehow. What happened to you, man? What happened to you? Well, first off, I appreciate your concern because uh, you're my friend and I like you. And really, you have no business working with me, being kind to me, doing this podcast with me, being on the air. Like every interaction you have with me is a favor. I don't know why you do it. My brother, when I was a kid, told me my parents paid my friends to hang out with me. I still think my parents pay you. Um, they don't. But a lot of people came out through the woodwork. A lot of people that I worked with at Bell Media who didn't have anything to say when that time slot got canceled and I lost my job reached out to say, how you doing? And the first person who reached out, I'm like, this is odd. Maybe they're really worried about me. And I said, I'm doing fine. Next response. Do you have 15 minutes for an interview? Oh. Everyone and their sister who I knew at Sirius XM, at Bell, even a TV show, they read the Weather Network, my friend who's a reporter, at the, they all wanted to interview me. And since I vaguely work for Burning Man organization, I could not talk to the media. I couldn't give an official statement. But at the same time, I was the media. Burning Man's only media outlet is the radio station, which I don't run, but I help run. I, I work there. Yeah. But yeah, so it, I'd, I'd say either turn on the radio or email this email address, which is press relations at Burning Man, knowing well they would not get back to any media outlet. But here, ironically, I thought I was being, you thought I was being your friend and I tricked you to think, but here I am getting the interview. I'm getting the scoop. <laughs> well, I'm interviewing you about me on my show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. That's the only catch is that it's on your show. So yeah. to give a little more context of what I do, uh, there is a radio station that's affiliated with the organization. They fund it. We all get to go for free. We're staff and all that kind of thing. But we work the event and it's a 24 hour radio station, live programming 24 seven for about two weeks. And usually it's just a few notices about, hey, this is a leave no trace event. Hey, this is when people can leave. Hey, this is what the traffic weather is going to be. But by and large, it's just a bunch of DJs and a bunch of talk hosts messing around doing the weirdest, most funky, freeform radio you can imagine. That's what it usually is. But the reason we're there and the reason we're funded by Burning Man organization is because we're part of the permitting process. There is very little cell reception, almost no internet. Now with these Starlink things, there's some internet. Starlink, Starlink things, there's internet. But essentially, we are the emergency broadcasting arm of that event because everyone has radios in their cars. A lot of people bring portable radios and it's the only way to disseminate information in a massive way to a city that gets built out of nothing with 70 to 80,000 people in it with no cell reception. And so one year a kid went missing during the drive out. They shut down the roads. They put out a sort of a, their version of an Amber Alert until they found the kid. The kid had just gotten drunk and passed out in a tent somewhere. It was a 16 year old. It was, you know, the kid was fine. But, you know, that sort of thing is why we're there. Um, or, you know, if there was some sort of, I don't even want to say it, it's so awful. Uh, I don't even want to put the idea in people's heads. Don't even. You know, if there was some sort of terrorist event, um, you know, the cops would take over our radio station to coordinate that kind of thing. So we're there for a real purpose and we're part of the government permit that we need to be there. But essentially that that use never gets triggered except for when it does. Except by weather. Weather did it. Just like it doesn't rain in the desert except for when it does. And it's a dried up lake bed, which just love to get wet and be like a one inch lake until it dries off, which is what happened. So that, that's the context for what we're doing out there and what happened to me working at that station, doing shows at that station when the rain hit. Up until that, we was just a drug festival with hippies taking off their clothes and rubbing their genitals everywhere with consent and all that kind of thing. So yeah, it was wild. We didn't know what to do. We were getting radioed from the head of Burning Man, put out this messaging, change this messaging, do that messaging. And at first it was just serious PSAs and stuff. But then 
I asked my boss, can we have fun with it? So we invented a character named Butthole Steve. I heard about Butthole Steve. He's, he's sort of famous. He is famous to the point where there's thousands of comments online about him. And whenever I say I'm the voice of Butthole Steve, people are like, we don't care. They're just cracking jokes about how Butthole Steve. I went to dinner in San Francisco the night after I came back from Burning Man. This was Wednesday night. And it was a restaurant I used to go to when I lived there. The waiter recognized us. I knew he used to go to Burning Man. So I jokingly said to him, I'm famous at Burning Man. I'm the voice of Butthole Steve. And this woman sitting at the bar near our table, just a random patron, just screams, you're Butthole Steve. And she can't get enough of me. She's talking to Miranda, my girlfriend, because she does shows at the radio station. She like has to add me to social media. She sends me a message. She's like, and that's the first interaction I had. Mind you, that's in San Francisco, which is close to Burning Man. Yeah, still, still. It's, I've, I mean, I've, I remember once at a bat conference, someone saying, you're the one who put vampire bats on a treadmill. And it's the same feeling. It's like, thank you. Yeah. Yes, I am. I did do that. Like, you're my people and I did this for you and I'm glad you appreciate it. Exactly. It might've been the first time I was recognized on the street by a stranger. Um, I, you know what? I've done stand-up shows and people on the street are like, I was at your show last night, but this is a little different because I never, I didn't see them. They were just someone listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then with radio, it's just a big, you just send it out. You never know who's out there. And it was wild. So we streamed the station online. So we, we went from having, I don't know, a few thousand listeners to hundreds of thousands of people to the only media outlet that regular you know, traditional media outlets could consume to figure out what was going on there. So we put out a series of PSAs and the moral of the first one I did or the second one I did was to take care of your neighbor. You know, people's tents were getting flooded and yet there's a lot of people there with trailers and RVs or tents that didn't get flooded. And so our messaging was if people are fucked up in six degrees Celsius weather with wet feet and a wet tent, take care of them. Invite them into your tent, invite them into your RV, make sure they're dry, you know, just just be a good person when you see people messed up so that those people messed up weren't going to freeze to death because it's a desert. It gets cold at night. So this is we'll get more into the specifics of kind of how it all went down. But I do want to play for you one of these butthole Steve public service announcements we put out. Please do. Please do. We always we always have time for public service announcements on this show. I like that I'm taking over. Go ahead. So I observe people walking out there with just feet and when it's you know, 40 degrees during the day in the desert or 35 degrees in the desert um, or 90 Fahrenheit or then 35 at night or 40 at night, which is, I don't know, six degrees Celsius and you got wet feet, you're going to get frostbite, right? I mean, I was worried about people. You get cold. I, I had to argue with all these hippies to go back to their, their camping grounds and get dry feet because, you know, the temperature was dropping. So I'm like, people are going to get messed up out there. I want to put out a PSA. My boss said, fine. I said, can I have fun with it? My boss said, fine. I said, can I use the character Butthole Steve? My boss is, thinks about it for a second. He says, fine. This is one of the announcements that played every 10 minutes when the whole world was watching Burning Man and the wild stories that were way out of proportion were coming out uh, in the media. Dude, dude, it's Butthole Steve. I went wandering around on the playa last night without any gear to keep me warm or dry, and now I got trench foot on my butthole. It's got to be amputated, so stay warm, stay dry, don't wander around without the right gear because you're all messed up. Otherwise, you'll be like me, Butthole Steve, without a butthole. Stay warm, stay dry, take care of your neighbors if they're messed up. That's nice. Yeah, that aired every five or ten minutes. (laughs) Oh, my Um, God. And something wild happened after that aired. A certain media outlet, which will remain unnamed, that started with F, 
uh, 20 minutes after we aired that, put out an article saying people were getting trench foot out at Burning Man. Oh, you did this? Yes. And we were yeah. we were going wild with that because there were no, yes. I mean, there was people that were getting alkaline salt burns on their feet because when you go barefoot in that uh, wet mud that's so heavily, uh, what is it, acidic, basic, I don't know what alkaline is, you should. Uh, alkaline is basic, I think. There you go. It burned their feet and it messes up their foot and when your foot's wet in a boot for 24 hours, you can get all kinds of messed up stuff going on. But is it really trench foot and is it really happening often to people no but it was crazy it was so funny to us that that happened so that's the level of attention we were getting and yeah butthole steve became a a character he became a hero anyone who was behaving badly it was like don't be a butthole butthole steve's a butthole so you don't have to be Uh uh-huh there's this so at burning man there's these art cars if you've seen any photos it's people who have rebuilt cars and trucks to be works of art and there's a huge one that's an octopus and this one shoots out fire. It's called El Popo. And they never let anyone on. And when they found out I was Butthole Steve, they opened the red rope. They let me up. They let me poof all the fire. They were chanting Butthole Steve. People are going wild. The character wow. became bigger than me. Um, and, it, you know, is a chef a restaurant? Is a president a country? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, this is like, you often... We've talked about Burning Man, and you've you've tried to explain to me like it's different from other radio. It's like it's experimental. It's weird. It's as strange as it could possibly be. And you have the sense that David Cooper would thrive in a situation like that. But then what you do is you add, like, you make the stakes high, where it's like, oh no, people actually need this yep. in this moment. And you're like, yes, I am going to step up for this, but I am not changing our core values. We're still doing it the way that I do this. And yep. So you you basically tricked Fox into thinking there was trench foot at Burning Man. It wasn't Fox. Sorry, not Fox. Uh, uh, no, it, it legit wasn't Fox. It was a print oh. a print outlet that starts with F. You can do the math there. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was wild and it was so much fun. And my campmate became Butthole Barb and she started recording uh, PSAs. Like it was wild and it was so fun. I mean, yeah. our tent got a little flooded and some of our campmates were messed up. But because we're on the small electrical grid for staff, like we had power. Um, oh, okay. Good. Did you get trench foot on your anus? No, uh, I didn't. My, my David Cooper's anus is fine, but people were coming by the radio station offering to give up their butthole, uh, <laughs> you know, as a donation. It was so wild and it was so fun. And yeah, it was just crazy to be out there. But the truth is... People took care of their neighbors. You know, there were really all those instances of people getting messed up were people who could not deal with the fact that they were grounded for 36 hours. So people tried to leave in a panic. And because all the policing agencies, there's four or five of them out there, but they're all kind of, let's be honest here, a little bit right wing Republican. You know, there's the feds, there's the county police in some small county in Nevada. Uh, Nevada. Why do I say Nevada? I think they say Nevada, don't they? I think Nevada is a Canadian way to pronounce the American word Nevada, I think. So I said it right. But so all the policing agencies were thinking, just sort of said, we're not going to stop people from leaving. And it was the first time when I thought, hey, right-wing policing agencies are maybe doing it right. Because it's kind of your constitutional right to leave, you know? Yeah. Uh, And so the organization was telling everyone to shelter in place, but then they changed their messaging to, you definitely should shelter in place, but if you are to walk off or drive off, here's how to do it. Don't do it. You'll probably get stuck if it's cold and and it's at nighttime and you fall out there you're going to be stuck and emergency services might not get to you you could freeze to death so do it during the day um you know try to avoid these wet portions of the desert floor the playa um which i kind of like because i actually i don't know i have this deep belief that you can't tell people to stay put like you can't force people 
to stay somewhere. Like they have a right to leave. Well, here now we're going back to COVID land, right? I mean, but you're right. I mean, those are nerves that got tickled in 2020 for sure. Well, I actually think the government does have a sort of emergency right or mandate to tell you not to leave when there's a public health emergency. But this was not a public health emergency. Right. You know, it, it just driving out there was you were likely to get stuck in your car and likely to cause ruts in our in the roadway that gets created in the desert. But at right. the end of the day, if you can make it off of there, you know, power to you. But yeah, we were telling people to shelter in place, which I, I realize now is maybe the wrong language. Well, I, I mean, who, I mean, yeah. People can, are triggered they, by that phrase now. I hear you. I hear you. But it seems like, well, who knows? I mean, people, there will be books written about it. I hope that you at least get a good interview or something for the book or maybe you'll write the book or maybe i don't know maybe the part of the culture is you don't write books about burning man i don't know what happens no there's plenty of books and plenty of wonderful photos and videos but yeah afterward this guy who writes for the paris review which i'd never heard of but miranda had she's she likes to read she's smart i'm i'm basically mm-hmm. illiterate um it's called the paris review and it, i guess it's what that movie the french dispatch by uh, wes anderson was based oh, yeah. off of maybe yeah and this guy wrote a big thing about listening to uh, BMIR, Burning Man Information Radio, during the event from home. And I'm prominently featured. And a phone call I made to my mother was featured in the article. Uh, I, every year at this event, decide to call my mother at the end live on the air. And I always ask her outrageous questions. I've asked her what her favorite sex position is with my dad. Oh, dear God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> She always plays along. She's a good sport. If I asked her that at the dinner table, she'd smack me upside the head and I wouldn't be invited back to dinner. But when I'm on the radio, she's a good sport. Um, wow. This year I asked her why when I was a little kid, I went shuffling around in my parents' bedside drawers, as kids do. I asked her why her vibrator was on my dad's side of the bed. Uh, huh. And she quit back so quickly. She's saying, because I don't understand technology, <laughs> which is so true. It's so true. <laughs> she does not, not know a VCR. It. Yeah. Well, no, she can't send a text message. Uh, she thinks an iPad is purely for playing Canasta, which she's actually good at. Mm, all right. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're using technology for one thing a lot, maybe you get good at it. But that's a question you can ask your mother about. It's just so funny that like that phone call made it into a, a print media, you know, and they're talking about my mother and... Anyway, that's the short of it. I've just talked for, I don't know, 25 minutes straight. Do you have any questions? Do you want to jump into science? I'm were you No, were you scared? Like at any point were you like, oh, this is not good. We might run out of food or I might have to poop in a, in a bucket and carry it somewhere. Like, were you ever worried? Food, no, because I've gone there as a regular attendee and I've gone there as a staff member and people always bring way too much food. Like I had 15 things of ramen that I brought back home that I are now in storage for next year. You know, the, <laughs> I, I was not worried about food. I was worried about frostbite and people getting messed up. I was particularly worried about the porta potties. I've seen what can happen to a porta potty when it is not serviced. And the service trucks, I didn't know if they would be able to get to them. Uh. The, the organization made the decision to rip up the playa and then bulldoze it to get those porta potty service trucks to porta potty. So there weren't, there wasn't like a human waste sanitation problem. Yeah, it's it's not just like you think, oh, gross, it'd be so gross. But like people die when you have human poop that spills out into the places where they're walking around. That's bad. Yeah. And the, but I had heard that the trucks could only get to the porta potties. They could not get out of the event 
to dump. So eventually oh. they would have been full. We came nowhere near that. But if it had gone on three or four days, yes. Um, I was worried about the future of the event. I was worried about people panicking, leaving, getting stuck, which many people did. But it was in the order of like less than 100. But that's what the media uh, wrote about. That's a story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was more worried about the future of the event and unsanitary conditions around the porta potties. But none of that came to pass. Do you think that this is going to change anything for next year? I don't know. I think the event somehow managed through donations, austerity measures to keep most people employed over two years of the event not happening. Keep in mind, 70,000 attendees, tickets are on average $450 or something. Vehicle passes oh, wow. are another 100 So you can imagine how much money that needs to generate for that event to happen. Two years of that didn't wash out the event. If it can survive the pandemic, I think it can survive this. I think maybe less people will come next year, but the, mm. the kind of people who won't come are the kind of people you don't necessarily want there. They're the people that don't realize it's a camping event in a harsh environment and getting grounded for 36 hours is maybe part of it. Right. Yeah. So how does this one rank in terms of all your Burning Mans? Where would you put it in? the? I mean, how many Burning Mans have you done and where do you put this? I've done nine. I've been going since 2013 every year, except for the two pandemic years where people went anyway, even though there was no event. People call it the renegade burn. I call it shit in a bucket, man, uh, because that's <laughs> what you had to do. People brought, did, yeah. people brought buckets with kitty litter. Isn't that wild? Oh my! Yeah, I mean, good for them for planning. Yeah. I don't know that I would do that, but good for them. In some sense, it was a lot of fun for me because I love doing radio. The last time I did an all-hands emergency broadcast where management took over and sort of listening to what they say and the tone changes and everything becomes important was the night that Ukraine got invaded, regrettably, mm. awfully, humanitarian, disasterly, if that's a word, by Russia. But, I mean, doing that for Bell Media calling specialists at the border and having my producer, Ben Harrison, uh, who I don't think I've ever talked about the, on the show, but I guess you know, type out what I had to say. They didn't even let me play my fun jingles. They just played the breaking news jingle and I'd just be like, we're back, breaking news. Um, and then there was a time where I didn't get to do it, which is after Burning Man last year when the queen died, the guy filling in for me got to do it. Um, mm. I love that stuff, but to do it in a weird, wacky, ridiculous way... Like me and my friend uh, CX or Kid Tronic, who's an awesome DJ in New York, were doing offensive Italian stereotypes. Uh, he was Mickey Meatball. I was Tony Pepperoni. And we were saying, if you go out there in the mud and party and don't shelter in place, we're going to come out there and slap you up. Uh, you're going to be like my ex-wife's lawyer. No one's going to find you. And then I kept on being like, oh, and we can't find my ex-wife's lawyer's lawyer now. We can't find my ex-wife's lawyer's lawyer's lawyer's. And people online are live commenting about my ex-wife's lawyer's lawyer's. It was just so much fun. That's very David Cooper, that joke. That's that's like, that. if you asked ChatGPT to make a joke in the style of David Cooper, it would be something iterative like that. Exactly. And, and recursive. Yeah. And yeah. After the event, when everyone actually had the chance to leave, I had to. Do, we went way longer than we were supposed to. We went on air for two days longer than we were supposed to, and I had a two-hour show. And I'm just thinking, I'd lost my water bottle that I had for every Burning Man the mm. night before, and I was kind of butthurt about it. And so I did a two-hour show about locating my water bottle. <laughs> and what it was one of those jokes where at first it's funny, then it's annoying, and then it's funny again. People were calling in. I kept on saying that the Burning Man organization selfishly would not shut down the exodus driving operation 
and put uh, everyone in this. And I was like complaining about how the organization was selfish right. not to look. And people online and people are calling in being like, you know, and people are emailing me. Did you ever find the water bottle? It was just I got to do the stupidest shit while it while relaying important news that people cared about. It was such a joy for me, even though our tent got a bit flooded and watching our neighbors fucked up and, and dealing with this crisis and getting their stuff ruined and worrying about jobs and child care. People were coming to the radio station freaked out about their child care issues because they had heard we'd had internet and could help them. And, you know, mm. on the one side, there was sort of something awful about people who weren't planning to stay longer than that. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it was such a joy to do that kind of work. Yeah, right. And so people talk about how Burning Man's like this island of reality where it's 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 its own thing. And part of the reason that all these tech people like to go there is because it lets them sort of think outside the box and think about what they might create in the real world. Do you, th thinking about your radio, like if the queen died again or someone else or whatever, if there were some other real event, I mean, where where do people tune in for the that version of that sort of tongue-in-cheek version of not taking it too seriously at, you know that doesn't exist do you think there's I, a there's a place for that outside burning man i don't know maybe community radio stations but i i don't know it's it's why it's my one of my favorite stations if not my favorite station i, I don't know of anywhere where i could do work like that and it's such a joy to do um you know, it's what I want this podcast to be probably a little more serious. Let's be honest. I can't always be so ridiculous. But the thing with podcasting, it's not live. So I, I don't know. Right. I, I don't know. And that's why I love to go. And that's why it's one of my favorite events and, and stations. And yeah, I, I don't know where I could do that. But I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, I don't I wouldn't be in this career if not for that radio station. It's not that I wasn't doing hobbyist radio work outside of Burning Man. Let's say this. In the staff commissary where people eat, I was talking to two people who work at the airport at Burning Man. They clear out an airstrip and small planes come in and out. Some of them are charters. It's kind of expensive. You can't bring much gear, but rich people will fly in. And occasionally, and pilots who are nerds who maybe don't have a ton of money, but their whole life is around their shitty plane, they fly in. And then you get the occasional rich person who, you know, flies their tiny jet in or whatever and they probably spend twenty thousand dollars after the event just cleaning the dust out of their plane um right but i was talking to these two people who work at the airport auxiliary jobs you know, nothing critical to the actual flight and they were so excited about all the flight operations and i said do you work in aviation in your real life and one of them was like no i'm an accountant and the other one was like no i'm a roadie <laughs> like literally sets up concerts and stuff wow and so they get to um play dress up and do the job they want to do in a crazy, fun, supportive environment for two weeks of the year. And that was me up until I left my job to be in commercial radio. Right, okay. Four years ago, three years ago, whatever it was. Burning Man helped me get the... And I got to work at this radio station, I think, starting seven years ago. It helped me learn the language. It helped me frame in my mind that this is a real job. Like, I... I didn't even know you could do this. I know that sounds so stupid. It doesn't even make sense to someone like you who's been in broadcasting and television and all this for so long. But just the fact that not you... That, not that much longer than you, but go on. Well, the fact that you could do this. Yeah. Like, you, you can do this. It's cool. I mean, so 
when I was imagining what's happening for David Cooper, I was like, oh, he's probably just like having a very lonely experience, like really like stuck and inconvenienced and worried about getting back. And like, I just all the sort of, you sort of jump to the day-to-day -day logistics. You don't, I didn't have any inkling that you were like stepping into like this, like this is my time to shine like yeah. and stepping into it and making it into art. Usually we allow hippies to come into the radio station and announce they lost their bike or and tell the fun story. But I was the one with a radio and I don't mean FM radio. I mean like, you know, radio on my pants to communicate with my team and our bosses uh, standing at the front of the station when people would come up trying to get on the air being like, hey, what's the nature of your announcement? I was the bouncer for the station. I made sure the sound was good. You know, like we were all doing the important jobs, you know, alternating with one another. And it was just so much fun running that station. So it's a small job. I don't mean to have a big head about it, but for two weeks of the year, if you go to that event, it, it was a lot of fun and, and, and important to me. And Yeah, you're going to be part of what people remember about the event. I think so for some people, yeah. And especially people at home who had loved ones there and wanted to know what was going on. They were all tuning right. into the radio station's online stream. Amazing. Our, our numbers were insane, like 15, 20 times what they usually are. And so, yeah, it was just so much fun. Miranda hid in my friend's trailer. And, uh, you know, this is for parody purposes. It didn't actually happen. I would never actually admit to this, but did some drugs. You know, I, I did need a few moments where I, again, I didn't actually do this. This is for parody purposes. Went right. into my friend's trailer and, you know, did a little ketamine or whatever. Should I be telling you this? Is, is your persona too clean for me to tell you this? My persona is clean, but you just go ahead and spill whatever you want. You, I, so yeah, you you did do a little of that. No, never. I wouldn't. You, you Sorry, for parody purposes, you would say that you did. Yeah. I, I actually, I still didn't drink. I hit four years sober uh, September huh. 6th. So. Oh, muzzle tough. Thank you. It was. Way to go. Yeah. Uh, from alcohol. From alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, counts. That's cool. Any other questions about what went on? No, I mean, it's, uh, I I have never been. I know, like, every once in a while, people that I know from different places in my life went to Burning Man and, like, had an experience there. And everybody just says such positive things about the experience. Like, it, And they also sort of have this, it's like the way parents talk about having kids. Like, you don't really understand it until you've had kids. But once you've had kids, everybody's on the same page about it. It seems a little bit like that. It's an art festival, let's be honest. It's not a music festival, it's an art festival. Musicians have to bring their own stage and build it and pay to go just like everyone else. But people do. And I don't necessarily agree with that point of view. Hmm. However, I think you would like it. I think we have a meteorologist on our team who kind of reports into the radio station because he's the one. You would love this guy. He's a nerd. He's a professor of, I don't know, something at some university. I like those. Postdoc in geology, meteorology, gynecology, who knows what. Now that is a cloud formation I would like to see. Go on. <laughs> uh, one of those might have been wrong. Uh, you would love this guy. I, I just feel like whatever you do in the real world, there's a group of people who do it there. If you're into orgies, there's a camp called the Orgy Dome. You know, uh, there's if, an orgy dome. Yeah, that's like the Thunderdome, but better. There is a Thunderdome there. Oh, really? Like Tina Turner style? Yes. And people beat the shit out of each other. There's like a whole <laughs> Mad Max crew. My friend's a clown and she does clown sideshows there on a huge stage. Hundreds of people go. It's like weird stripper. It's like nudity clowning on, you know, acid. It's so messed up. Whatever your hobby is, whatever kind of music you like, there's a small group of people there doing it to the nth degree cool. and doing it weird. There's scientists. There's a sober camp. There's an AA camp. There's an NA camp. There's like, right. you know, I found my radio people. 
uh, there's everything there. And, and I think yeah. you would like it, but at the same time, it's an extremely harsh environment. I, I don't mind the harsh environment. To me, that sounds like the one thing that, like, I, I'm way more stressed about the social interactions with some acid-dropping nudist clown than I am about some cold weather. Like, I, even with the trench foot, I, I feel like I could, uh, I feel like I'm less scared of nature than I am people. So, Everyone's chatty. You can talk to anyone. There's a principle of the end of the event called immediacy and radical inclusion. Those are two of the principles. So immediacy means being present in the moment. Radical inclusion. I sound like such a fucking hippie right now. Radical inclusion means, you know, whoever happens upon you, your art, your, your group of friends, whatever, you include them. So there is that uh -huh. culture of everyone's friendly. Everyone talks to each other. People share things, food, whatever. But there's also this wonderful part of that where you can just end a social interaction like that. You can just be like, hey, I'm not really interested in talking anymore and walk away. And it's not awkward. Miranda, my girlfriend, loves this. So, like, <laughs> you know, you just talk to whatever weirdo or whatever weirdo talks to you. But you can just walk away. And it's not, I mean, it's a little awkward. But it's like a normal part of discourse there. So, the yin to the yang of everyone talks to everyone. It's so much social interaction. So many weird interactions with strangers. Uh, the, the, the counterpart to that is you can walk away and say you need alone time to strangers. And they'll respect it. Uh, wow, I guess that's part of why it works. I would guess, yeah. right? Is you feel a lot more willing to invest because that's the whole reason you don't talk to people on the bus is because they'll keep talking to you, yeah, and you don't have an exit strategy until they, you get to your stop. That's I love talking to strangers, but I can't help but think, and I can't help but think people think this of me is how long am I in for? You know, did I just give this person an inch and I now have a mile of conversation to go? Um, you started this today, Dan. You started this with me. You mentioned Burning Man and I won't shut up. I know, but Bob, but I could just, you're saying if this were Burning Man, I could just hit this little button and the conversation would end and I'd go about my day and we'd be good. That's exactly right. Dan, I feel in some sense bad talking about myself for now half an hour with you. This is what I go through with this every time I talk about myself for half an hour. So this time, at least speaking of yins and yangs, we're even. Listen, your story over the last week is much more interesting. My kids went to school. The twins are going to their big brother's school now. So they all go to the same school. There you go. You're caught up. It's it. <laughs> that's that's what's happening in my world. So I think it was worth uh, taking a little time. I have some science stories. We can bounce those around. Um, but it's. Uh, I'm glad you're okay. And listen, David Cooper, thanks for your service. <laughs> thanks for guiding a bunch of washed up hippies through the desert when they needed it. And tech bros and Chris Rock probably. Yeah, Chris Rock. He was a bad burner. He walked out and set a bad example for everyone. Yeah. But yeah, I uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was a great joy to watch my girlfriend Miranda, who I'm going to have on the show later this week to talk about mm. it, uh, watch her on the air. You know, she was on George Strombolopoulos' Strombodapapapa Stephanopoulos, Strombo show, and mm -hmm. she had said, hey, like, come in the studio, like, you know, I don't want to be on the air alone with him or whatever. And as I'm hearing them on the air, she's so funny. She's dominating the conversation. She's talking over Strombo, which I love, and uh -huh. everyone thinks she's amazing, and I just hang, hung out outside the studio and didn't go in once. And then she had her own show and she said to me, hey, can you come on the air with me? I'm a little nervous. I, I came on the air for five minutes and then I left while she played a song because she does a little music and talk. I do only talk. And uh, well, it's not always true. I occasionally play music, but not important. And mm -hmm. she's like carrying the whole show herself. This Burning Man celebrity comes in, the woman who runs the newspaper there. There's, you know, Remember I said there's a little bit of everything. If you like doing print yeah. and writing, there's a newspaper. She, this woman comes in and Miranda and her are shooting the shit. And I'm just hanging back. And everyone's saying how funny she is, how she's so much funnier than me, how she's a better broadcaster than me. And I'm just, it was such a joy to watch her really like come into herself 
on the mic and not need me around and me not even want to be around because I don't want to try to dominate things. Uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, dude. I, That's I, good. It's I don't know what's more annoying, going to Burning Man or having to talk to somebody who just went because they won't shut up about it. Yeah. Um, but this year was it was special to watch people really get together and get through. Honestly, let's be honest, forty eight hours of being stuck in the desert. Yeah, I mean you can belittle it, but those are opportunities for people to be real d bags or to be good people. And it sounds like the overwhelming sort of theme. And there was a piece in the New York Times while you were gone. I don't know how much you were paying attention to the world, but there's a piece in the New York Times about how it was an example of of people coming together and how yeah. people are checking on each other. And, and that just seems to be the story that emerges. And I like that. I mean, I remember when, remember the show Survivor? Of course. It's, it's on like season 7,085, Dan. Yeah. So the very first one, it was interesting because it was an experiment that had never been done before. And everybody was like, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And like, there was a real debate. Are people going to turn out to be good or are people going to turn out to be bad? And then the, it ended just with people being terrible to each other and saying like, if you were dying, I wouldn't help you. I remember there was some monologue that like, the runner-up said to somebody else. I'm probably remembering it wrong. But the take-home was that people were bad. And then in the next season, it turned out to be still that people were bad. And that's been the theme of every reality show since that I can think of, which maybe that's not true, but I stopped watching them after the first one because I don't like that message. And it doesn't move me, like watching that does not make me happier or make bring me closer to being the person I want to be. So I, I avoid that stuff. But you know, that a lot of that's an artifact of the producers pushing people and it's not necessarily true for what people do. And and it's nice. This was a weird microcosm. Yes, the stakes were low. No, nobody was going to die. But um, they, somebody could have died. But it wasn't, it wasn't like Ukraine or something like that. But yet people were good. I'll say two things. One is that the media paid attention to those people who panicked, tried to leave, got stuck, who were worried, uh, who tried to leave in their vehicles in basically a mud slop and their vehicles got stuck and abandoned and one of them even caught fire. Um, you know, that's what the media paid attention to. And those stories were very much there, um, but it was a fraction of the event. And the second thing is, I think it's very easy to create an environment where people are shitty to each other. If you look at the Stanford prison experiment, uh, which was this wild experiment where they let students become wardens and prisoners in a fake jail, and the wardens took utter advantage of the prisoners to the point where they had to cancel the experiment. And it's an awful example of how ugly humanity can be. But I think you can create an environment where otherwise normal people behave in ugly ways. Uh, survivor being one, Stanford prison experiment being other. But when you leave people to their own devices, uh, you leave a lot more room for the range of humanity. And I think what you're going to see overwhelmingly is people being good to each other. It's only when you create these structures, like uh, if you, even if you take the example of Ukraine, do I think every Russian soldier is a total D-bag murderer? No. But I think the culture of the Russian military and the culture of that state creates that environment for those people to behave badly. And they do. Yeah. Uh, it's just like... I mean, I'm not saying the Nazis were good. It was one of the most evil regimes, some of the most wicked acts we've seen. But do I think every soldier in the German army, you know, deserves death and hell? And even if they did wicked things, probably not. It was the environment they were in. So I think it's very easy to create environments where people behave in ugly ways. Uh, I think it's easy for producers to do it uh, so that we can gawk at it on TV. Um, I don't know that that happened when people got stuck in the mud at Burning Man. I think the by and large people were helping their neighbor. Yeah, I, I I think it's easy to dismiss it as an inevitability, but I don't, I mean, especially when you have some of those billionaires and some people really take themselves seriously, it could have been people could have like come out of the Burning Man character and started trying to throw their, their money around or their weight around and, or their egos around. But anyway, I'm glad that wasn't your experience. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, 
to seeing how things change in the future or whether this just makes everybody just all the more Burning Man-y? I think you and your wife should come. Uh, get the kids a sitter for a week and head out there. Yeah. I, any, I, honestly, I would go anywhere if I could get my kids a sitter for a week. I would, <laughs> I'm not saying I would go to Ukraine, but I'm saying I would, I would really like to, uh, yeah, I could, I could use a week at Burning Man. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's, a, it's exhausting. All right, we were talking about Nazis. Let's talk Hitler, because everyone wants to blame the perfectly mediocre landscape artist. But really, is everything his fault, Dan? Look, we're doing a science story. We're doing it your way. I really like this one, because I always find animals are named, you know, they're latin or scientific name is there a name yeah. for the name of things what is that called yeah nomenclature no oh that's the word all right mr yeah. fancy dan nomenclature is to give names taxonomy is how they are ordered so there's taxonomy and nomenclature those are words that are thrown around and it all goes back to linnaeus 1700s he was this guy carl linnaeus he was a swede and he wanted to put all of god's creatures he wanted to see how god's creatures were organized and so he created this system where there was a hierarchy where they were in families and then there were was a genus and there was a species for each one and you would give a name to it and say, okay, that is, um, you know, that's Homo sapiens. Okay, humans are Homo, that's a genus, sapiens is a species. Sticks, you can't change it. Once I name it, that's what you call it. And so, like, if I'm in the Amazon and I discover a new bird, and I say, oh, I'm going to call this one, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Turtus David Cooperii, <laughs> then that's what it's I named. can't. That's what it's named, unless it turns out that somebody else already found that on the other side of the river and already gave it a name, in which case, whichever name is older is the name it gets. You can't change the names. Doesn't that lead, now that we have you know DNA evidence to prove the branching of animals and, and things that might appear to be cousins are actually much more distant cousins and in different groups, doesn't that lead to erroneous naming and, and bad grouping and things like this? Well, what ends up happening is like, let's say you have one species like the bent wing bat, which is a species of bat that when I was doing my masters occurs all over the world. Well, now that they've done the DNA studies on it, they realize that it's actually five different species. Well, so what they do is they go back and they say, well, which one was the taxonomist pointing at when they called that the, the Miniopterus triberzi? Okay, that is the one that keeps the name and you have to come up with new names for the other four. But it's whichever one is the type specimen, that's the one that keeps the original name. So despite the fact that what looked like one species is actually 17 or what looked like 17 species is really just one. The rules are unambiguous and clear and everybody knows what the rules are and everybody sticks to them. And that's not a problem until you have a beetle that's named after Hitler. And then all of a sudden people are like, should we maybe change that name? And people are like, oh no, we don't change names. But it's Hitler. Like it's literally, it's not just that it's the same name as Hitler. It's named after Hitler. There was this Austrian entomologist in the thirties who was like, I would like to honor the Fuhrer or whatever they called him. And so they, it's, Anophthalmus Hitlerii. And, um, and of course, neo-Nazis love this thing. And so they'll pay thousands of dollars for specimens of it because its name is Hitlerii. And so, or Hitlery. Um, so anyway, finally, people are starting to be like, maybe we should change names sometimes. And so there's this big debate happening right now among biologists where basically people said we should change names like Hitler. And he's not the only one. Like people have done a lot of bad things and a lot of animals are named after people. Maybe we should start changing, you know, the rules for when animals, we need to rename them. And the, the organization that sort of keeps track of all that stuff just put their foot down and said, no, we're never changing our ways. And then people said, don't you study evolution? Like... <laughs> <laughs> couldn't you couldn't you maybe see the benefit of changing with those times and so anyway the conversation has started and hopefully they're going to be able to fix it but when i was researching the story i did come across a moth that everybody listening should know about it's a moth with weird blonde hair and very very small genitals and it's called 
Neo Palpa Donald Trumpy. <laughs> Uh, how, for, I want to just roll back to what you said. How many animals are named after Hitler? Well, I think as far as I know, it's just the one that's named after Hitler. But there are other ones that are named after, like, you know, settlers who wiped out indigenous communities. Or you have, like, uh, in Africa, you might have a bunch of species that are named after Europeans that were there and were enslaving the people who lived there. And so you you, off, you have a whole, whole bunch of names where it's like the, the history of the person is really problematic. Um, they estimate, uh, according to this article I read on this, that 20% or so of all the one and a half million animal names that are out there are names after people. And so some of them, like Linnaeus, probably are going to be fine and you can just leave those. But there's lots of them named after Darwin, that's for sure. But a lot of them might need to change. And so this might be quite a big problem when you realize 20% of them are named after people. About 10% are named after places. And of course, the places we give to names can be problematic as well, because often it's the Europeans going into a place, ignoring what the locals call it, giving it some European name, and then naming all their animals after it. And then the locals are like, can we just please use the names for the, that we have for this? These are our animals. It's our place. Can we please use our names? So um, we may be seeing a whole bunch of name changes and, and it's going to have to be standardized exactly how they decide whether they should change this one or that one. And the, the, what works right now is there's no ambiguity. There's no judgment call. It's just whatever was first is the one you give it, no matter whether it works or not. But now it's like, okay, what's the line? Who's going to make yeah. the decision? Is there? Yep. Is it sort of like the French language? Obviously not Quebecois French, but French French, where there's the Académie Française that like really it's bizarre. There's like a centralized language authority for France yep. French, which is so funny to me. What? Who will the central authority be? Like, where will this come from? We're right, exactly. And then if you're worried about inclusion or you're worried about, you know, the, the history of, of Europeans sort of dominating over other cultures and, and European scientists, then how do you include people from these different communities and how do you include them in a, in a good way? I, you know, some people have argued that we should get rid of the names altogether, that ultimately it's a big braided river. All these things are like, what's to say that we're all in the same like you take a whole bunch of bat species, right? Well, they're all in different families, but it's totally arbitrary what you call a family. And they're all in the same order, which is separate from other kinds of mammals. But, you know, like it's kind of clear with bats because they all fly. And so if it flies, it's part of the order Chiroptera. But that's a judgment call based on flight. When you take other orders, like the whales, should should that definitely be separate from the hippos? Because they're pretty closely related and hippos and whales aren't that different. It's like, so are they really a different order? So the whole thing is fudgy and maybe it should just be like some kind of a barcode number which would make it way less fun to name what species it is, but you'd hold your scanner up, it would give you the barcode, and you'd know what animal it was, and there'd be no ambiguity about it, and there'd be no, you know, Hitler. There'd be no Hitler. Uh, no Hitler. That's, yeah. I remember when I was a kid, we were fishing in uh, Miami. My grandparents had a place there. Hmm. Um, and the, I remember there was someone in the fishing dock, or the fishing dock, on the, the dock. The fishing dock. That's what they use in, in Miami, isn't it? Fishing docks? Who was talking about Jewfish, and I was like, what the fuck? Oh, yeah, and my groupers. dad was like, didn't care. And I'm like, what is going on here? Jewfish this, Jewfish that. I never thought anything of it until I read an article many years ago, maybe five, 10 years ago, that they were, Florida was officially renaming the Jewfish to the Goliath grouper. And I'm like, yep. okay, I guess that, I don't, don't really know why that's offensive, but I, I somehow am offended by it, I guess. If if you imagine a racist comic from the 1930s, or frankly from today, because the people are getting evil again. God bless America. Yeah, it's it's big big lips and all this stuff. It's a bunch of things that you might draw in a caricature, and that's why they called it a Jewfish. There's, ah. there's other ones, too. Like, there's a bird that... Um, 
that is called a, a long-tailed duck. And the name that that bird had even 20 years ago was old squaw, which is a, a racist term that uh, that describes women uh, from indigenous communities. And oh, so, um, yeah, so they've changed that. And so, yeah, with the common names, so for birds, common names are standardized. And so they have to be careful with those. But there's a movement afoot even among bird people to just get human names out of it. Like Wilson's Warbler. Let's not, don't bring Wilson into this. Just let birds have bird names. Like give it, call it a black capped warbler. Don't call it Wilson's Warbler. But all those names are standardized and everybody agrees on them. And so it's, you know, it's an upheaval. And whenever there's a change, you have some people that are like, well, we can't change because we've always done it that way. But that's, I think that that argument is losing its footing pretty quickly because people are realizing that words really do matter. Yeah, like we can't make progress because we've always done it this way. It's maybe if that's your best argument for why yeah. something shouldn't change, uh, that's not a great argument at all. Yeah, but I will say like this idea of making barcodes instead of Latin names. I love the Latin names of animals. Like they're, So for bats, there's like 1,400 different kinds of bats. They don't have standardized common names. So if I say it's a long-eared bat, that could mean a different thing in Israel from what it means in North America, from what it means in Australia. It's just there are lots of bats with long ears. But when I say you know, Desmodus rotundus. That's the common vampire bat. And that's going to be its name forever. And also, like, there's a bat called uh, Pipistrellus uh, racy, R-A-C-E-Y-I, racii. And it's named after Paul Racy, who is this wonderful man who I went batting with in Madagascar once. And so... <laughs> I think it's the first time I've heard you, heard you say the word batting, Dan. I didn't even know that. You went to the batting cage? <laughs> <laughs> we did. Yeah, that's what they call Madagascar is the batting cage. No, we went to Madagascar because there's a bat there that has these um, sticking organs on its wrists and on its ankles for holding on to leaves. So, okay, I'm going to just take a little diversion on these these bats. So when I was a master's student, I started off working on a bat that lives in Central and South America called Spix's disc-winged bat, named after Spix. Uh, I don't know Spix's political history, so that name may stay or may not. I don't know. That is a racial, it's a plural version of a racial slur, but let's assume that that's not what... Well, it's got an X on it, so that's not what it is. Okay, so it's S-P-I-X. Okay, got so... So Spix's disc-wing bat uh, has these suck, like basically suction cups on its wrists and on its ankles, and it uses them to hold onto leaves. And for my masters, I measured how hard they stick, and I hound them off of different surfaces, and I wanted to know if they were actually suction cups or if they used something else to stick. So I had them try to stick to a screen door, basically, and they couldn't stick because you can't make a seal on a screen door with a suction cup, and so they would fall off. And so that was what I did for my masters. And then there was always this other bat that lived in Madagascar called the, uh, the sucker-footed bat, Mysopoda. And... I could never work on it because I was told you could go all the way to Madagascar and spend a year looking and you might find one of them. Like they're really, really rare. And so it was going to be way too expensive for me to go look for these bats. I'd never get a big enough sample size. So I kind of just forgot about it. And I went and did my PhD and I went and did a postdoc and all this stuff. And then Paul Racy, this guy after whom this bat is named, um, he comes up to me at a conference and says, Dan, he's British. Dan, would you like to see miser powder? And I said, yes. And he said, I know a hillside near the town of Kianjavat where I guarantee as many as you want. And I was like, we're going. So we flew together to Madagascar and we went to this hillside near the town of Kianjavat and we caught 32, I think, in one night. It was a gold mine. It was amazing. All males. We didn't catch a single female, which is this whole other mystery about where the females are. Um, but we caught them and we measured them and did all that stuff. And I worked with them and, and he was, it was just really cool because he was sort of like an old silverback of the bat world. And it was really cool to like go into the field with him because he's done that for decades. And I've read all these papers that he's written. And like, I just, it was like, I don't know, it was like jamming with, uh, 
with Keith Richards or something if you were a musician, right? If you like him so much, why don't you marry him, Dan? No, go on, go on. I don't have to because now a bat's named after him. And so that is a way that we can show, we can honor people like Paul Racy. But, ah. you know, this, so do we throw that away as well? Because, I mean, I'm sure you'd be able to find something in his history that that is quote-unquote cancelable. Maybe, I don't know, I'm not saying anything disparaging about him at all. But, you know, inevitably when you name things after people, people are going to be able to dig things up that they don't like. So maybe we get rid of naming things after people, but, uh, and it's all Hitler's fault. What is the name of the genus you were looking for? Mysopoda. Okay. That's the bat. That's the bat that lives in Madagascar. All yeah, right. Mysopoda. I'm about to execute on a perfect joke, Dan. Okay, go ahead. Uh, if you're wondering whether he's cancelable, if he's just going around showing grad students his Zapota, I think that, uh, yeah, he's <laughs> maybe an inappropriate guy. Uh, my Zapota. Yeah, there, there you go. My Zapota. Dun, dun, dun. Actually, um, I will say that you can, in the field, it's very hard to distinguish different species of Pipistrellus. And uh, he was very proud to point out that Pipistrellus racii could be distinguished from other members of the genus by the fact that it had a much larger penis. He thought that was very funny. That's how people actually dif differentiate me between other males as well. The, the small penis, that is. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Dan, I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather have on my first episode back from Burning Man than you. Um, I have nothing thoughtful to say. I have no Jerry Springer-style final thought to bring to the show. I wish I did. Do you? Yeah, I do. I do. You know what? I'm... I just, I feel like I learned a lot about you today. I learned a lot about what make, makes Burning Man work, but also just like, I don't know, like when you go to those events with people, you went with Miranda, you got to see a side of her you don't normally see, and now you come back and you've got a different perspective on her. I didn't have the advantage of going with you to this thing, but I am excited to have heard about the transformation that happened while you were down there. And I'm very excited that it, it turned into a chance for you to shine. That's, I love it. It makes me happy. It, it, that was a that was a very enjoyable first half of the interview. Then I started talking about science and it got boring. But I like the first half. Well, what's interesting is the first time I did like emergency coverage like that, I think it was the night that Ukraine got invaded. I sort of said to my peers and my boss, like, what do I do? And they just said, be calm. Repeat the information you have, even if it's just little pieces. As you get more, repeat it constantly. People are just looking to have someone there with them during crisis. And mm. that's what, I know it's so silly. And how can rain in the desert with, with a bunch of hippies, it's an emergency, like a minor emergency. It doesn't compare. But when my peers were like, what do we do? How do we get through this? I just repeated that simple advice. So to take kind of real world uh, radio advice, how to act when certain things happen, taking that experience and then transposing it, if you will, on top of just mayhem, chaos, comedy, freeform, weird, experimental, bizarre, butthole Steve radio mm -hmm. um, was a lot of fun. And I don't know at another event where you would get to do things like that. And I guess to me, that's why doing radio there was so fun. And so if you ask me if I had a good time or not, the rain emergency sucked. Watching people suffer sucked. Getting my shit flooded sucked. Um, although it was only partially flooded, not too bad compared to other people. But getting to do that radio was just such a joy and it was a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm glad to talk to you about it and I'm glad to uh, mansplain it to you, person-splain it to you, Dan. I am just happy I got the scoop because that all along, has been, I was playing the long game against all those other producers who were trying to get an interview with you. I was like, I know how I'm going to do this. I'm going to sneak in, wait till he comes back, and then I'm going to say, let's talk about science. Oh, while I have you, and then we'll do this. I'm going to blow smoke up your ass, and you're probably not going to like it if you're anything like me because I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable because I think I'm terrible at everything. 
but I've always loved working with you. Uh, I've always looked up to you. I view your time working with Craig Ferguson uh, almost in a way where I idolize you. For you to reach out to me when I came back, for you to ask to be on the show, for you to offer to talk about Burning Man actually meant a lot to me, Dan, and so I really appreciate it. Oh, well, then that's a mutualism, as the biologists say, because I like you too. Mutual masturbation. Um, mm, that's not what the biologists usually say. No, no, we, we didn't. Sometimes, sure. At Burning Man, they might say that, but not. <laughs> There's actually, it's so filthy. It's so hard to brush your teeth. You're covered in dirt and dust. Uh, honestly, it's the best way to do uh, raunchy stuff out there. You don't want to be doing anything more than that with the bad breath and the dirty genitals. And ugh, ugh. can you think of anything worse? No, <laughs> I sure can't. I was telling you about the orgy dome. There's a lot of sex camps. Of course, they're closed off. I mean, people do walk around naked, but you won't see sex out in the open. There's kids there. So, um, Mm. yeah, there's a lot of families that go. In fact, there's a whole sort of cordoned off section called Kidsville, which if you go through, you know, acting drugged out or overly sexed, I mean, you can walk through naked because nudity is not considered sexual there. But if you, Mm. you know, you're not really allowed to do anything inappropriate there. Uh, You'll get kind of yelled at if you do, which makes sense right thank you yeah but there are sex camps and i don't know how people do it i don't even people who are swingers even people who do that stuff in the real world even people who live in fringe kind of sexual communities who are free and open and swap partners and all that power to them i don't know how they do that out there because of how disgusting it is life finds a way yeah i guess i guess that to me is the wildest thing because you're in the middle of a dusty alkaline salt bed. You go outside for a second and you're covered in it. How could you possibly get busy in that environment? That's what I want to know. You know, John Stewart performed once at Cornell when I was a student there. And he had a joke where he was talking about how ridiculous it was that people were saying you should be able to outlaw homosexuality. He was yes. saying like, you have the urges you have, right? Yeah. Like if you're walking home after a test late at night or whatever, and you walk past a snowbank and you have a funny feeling while you walk <laughs> past a snowbank, you'll be back at three in the morning and you'll be having sex with that snowbank. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it doesn't hurt people, I guess. But what I worry about is it hurts themselves. Like I, I don't want to be, right. uh, you know, you're, you're gone and caught like the UTIs. It's just, you can't imagine. You can't imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for those people, I could imagine the three days, the extra three days before they could get to their penicillin would have been would have been a real stretch. Yeah, who knows? I I, I can't deal with the the dirt and dust. Um, I always have socks on there. I, people walk around barefoot. Can you imagine? Yeah, you should get a plastic bag and then socks. Right. Yeah. That's the yeah. Um, I just I don't know. I, I I haven't been on the air air since really November. I know I'm on Jim Richards' show uh, a few times a week, but. It was just nice to fucking work again and, and be heard again, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After being on air every night and trying to, like, crank out all that content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, That's good. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks, man. Dan Riskin, I will see you again. Uh, I get the feeling that you're never coming back to this show, but I get that feeling. You get that feeling every week. Every week. <laughs> well, I look forward to giving you that feeling again a week from now. I'll talk to you later. Take care of yourself.